Welcome back to Vendée Radio. It is Saturday the 30th of July in the year of our Lord 2022. It is my great pleasure today to be joined by a previous guest on Vendée Radio to discuss what Pope Benedict XV called the suicide of Europe, the catastrophe of the First World War and its impact on Christian civilization and on the church. With me to discuss this very important topic is Dr. Alan Fimister. Dr. Fimister, welcome back to Vendée Radio. Hello, thank you for inviting me. Well, it's, um, I think like the French Revolution, the First World War is one of those events that is almost impossible to, to overemphasize uh, its significance in this process of the disillusion of Christendom. Um, this event that itself was the synthesis of the French Revolution and the Industrial Revolution. This, this gargantuan hecatomb of iron, mass and steam and was instrumental in the final or nearly the final uh, destruction of, of uh, Christian civilization. But firstly, I'd like to survey the, the pre-war world which existed because um, as I'm sure uh, you've, you've thought about uh, Dr. Fimister, there is a, a kind of paradox here, which I'd really like to explore with you, which is that we have in the, um, particularly in, in Europe, but across the world um, in this period of La Belle Epoque, the Edwardian era, um, this, this paradox of both increasing secularization and a Catholic revival um, which had started in the, in the 19th century and, and continued. So on the one hand, we have church properties uh, being seized um, in various um, national jurisdictions, ecclesiastical privileges removed, clerical authorities coming under pressure to retreat from their positions in education and charitable provision, and liberal, national, radical and socialist political discourses uh, marked by an uncompromisingly anti-clerical rhetoric. At the same time, however, this era saw a flowering of Catholic religious life across Europe. There was a proliferation and elaboration of popular devotions, church buildings, religious foundations and associations, and confessionally motivated newspapers and journals. This revitalization of religious energies coincided with profound changes within the church herself. This Catholicism of later 19th century Europe was more uniform, more centralized and more Roman than the 18th century church had been. It was marked by a convergence of elite and popular devotions an interpenetration of lay and clerical organization, a rhetorical vehemence and a resourcefulness in the management of communicative media that it impressed contemporaries, whether sympathetic or hostile. And um, if you'll permit me, Dr. Fimister, I will just read a, a, a short uh, extract uh, by Roberto Di Mattei, which also, I think, captures the spirit of this pre-war era. He says, quote, the Belle Epoque meant optimism and euphoric confidence in the myths of reason and progress, symbolized by the choreography of the Excelsior Ballet. But the Belle Epoque was also the aristocratic and orderly style of life that even at the dawn of the 20th century reflected the way of living of the ancien regime. Sweetness of living was not an unrestrained enjoyment or modern easiness, but a reflection of divine love in modern society. 
a ray of divine light that illuminated and filled the spiritual joy with spiritual joy a society that was still somewhat devoted to god at least in its exterior structure this sweetness of living that talleyrand considered had already faded away with the french revolution but continued to hover over europe up to the eve of the first world war the belle epoque was the dream of the construction of modern civilization that began the century but is also that lingering patriarchal society whose last rays were to be found in the Austro-Hungarian monarch, heir to the crown of the Holy Roman Empire. At the dawn of the century, positivistic Europe lived alongside a Catholic and monarchical one, in a continent that still had four empires and 15 great monarchies. The luminous intensity of the Impressionists' paintings and the psychological novels of Paul Bourget reflected the atmosphere of those years. The principal tool of this cosmopolitan society was conversation, an art that required grace, amiability, diplomacy, and in which authentic savoir-vivre was identified. Paris, the Ville Lumière, is the symbol of this era, the acknowledged, acknowledged capital of an ideal world that extended its frontiers well beyond France and even Europe. Wherever the influence of European civilization reached, it was to France that recognition was given for the primacy of its language, its culture, and its fashion. So that's quite a sort of poetic picture of this pre-war world. Um, but I wonder, Dr. Fimster, what your thoughts are on this, this paradox that we see of both increasing secularization, but also uh, something of a Catholic revival. Well, I think you've got three forces at work there. You have the, um, you have the spirit of, of the revolution from the late 18th century, um, which is forging onwards. Um, you have the uh, the attempted uh, overthrow of that and reconstruction of a conservative European order by the uh, um, great powers at the Congress of Vienna. I mean, so obviously it's very striking that the Congress of Vienna begins in 1814 and, and the whole thing goes down in flames uh, definitively in 1914. Um, I mean, there is this sort of 100-year period and of course, I mean, you can see that order slowly declining over the course of that 100 years, but, but it, it could fall a lot further than it had done by 1914, as was clear by the end of the war, um, uh, by which time it was more or less extinct. Um, and, um, uh, and then the third force is the um, ultramontane-led revival in the church, which is attempting to um whether whatever one thinks of the, the merits or demerits of this is attempting particularly under leo the 13th to to show a way how uh, an authentically christian order could be restored um without that necessarily being a restoration of the forms which were destroyed or began to be destroyed in 1789 um and uh I mean, I know Pius the Twelfth, well, not Pius Twelfth, excuse me, Pius the Tenth was um, was very depressed by the outbreak of World War One or the imminent outbreak of World War One, and and I mean, it seems in a way that so there's two ways of looking at that third force. Either one thinks it's misconceived, and that you have to you have to work with the organic reality of Christendom and try and preserve and buttress that 
in a certain sense, you have to get with the program of Vienna 1814 because there's no alternative. That's one way of looking at it. And the other is is to see it as, as uh, in which case the Leonine project is in fact, despite itself, a solvent of Christian civilization because by trying to create a new ideal Christian civilization from first principles, uh, which cannot be done on this hypothesis, it is simply weakening um, uh, what's left of the old Christian civilization, which is the only one we've got and the only one we're ever going to have. So that's the, the negative understanding of that, the one that would see the rallying to the Republic under Leo XIII as, as a terrible error. Um, uh, the, uh, the alternative way of seeing it is that, uh, that the Leonine um, project could have succeeded and was succeeding um, to a large extent for the first half of the 20th century, but that, um, uh, that the First World War was a catastrophe because, as it were, it needed the chrysalis of the Vienna settlement to survive a little bit longer um, in order to give time for that project to, uh, to, to, to be more mature before it faced the cold winds of armed anti-Christian modernity um, with no Ancien Regime protection left to it. I mean, that's certainly one way. But of course, I mean, the interwar period is a very successful one for the Leonine Project because precisely modernity is exposed as terrifying, alternative, comprehensive doctrines that a lot of people, in the end, if they have to choose between the comprehensive doctrines of of, um, of fascism, Nazism, or communism, or Catholicism, they're like, well, I will sign up for Catholicism then. So, I mean, it seems, yeah, it seems to me that the First World War and the ideological consequence of that is are a reductio ad absurdum of modernity, um, which, which aids Catholicism and aids this third force. But whether, but, but again, the, the ultimate question of whether or not a new Christendom, not necessarily not in maritime sense, but an, a new Christendom was achievable, or whether the old Christendom was the only thing we have and the only thing we could ever defend, is a is is, is the ultimate prudential question uh, in terms of ecclesiastical strategy, and I don't know the answer. What would be your account for why this? Catholic revival, which um, you very much, uh, at least well, at least partly identify with the the Leonine uh, project. Um, what would be your account for its failure to permeate all levels of society? Uh, in contrast to the uh, Counter Reformation Baroque revival, which which very much did, for example, have great fruits in the arts and. Um, you know, led to very pious uh, royalty and nobility. Uh, but it seems that this 19th century revival was, as Henry Sear put it, an era of defective greatness, where there was great popular devotion uh, and, and apostolic mission to uh, life in, in those communities. But it didn't reach to the level of the social elite. What, what would be your account for that? I mean, I... I think the revival itself is a side effect of a catastrophe. So, so the well, I suppose that's true of the Counter Reformation as well, in a way. But the but um, you 
you have the church is is cocooned in the uh, in the immediate pre-revolutionary era in unbelief and uh you know people who are avid readers of the of Diderot's encyclopedia who don't believe in uh the christian revelation for a minute but they for their own amusement and for the sake of their political objectives will defend gallicanism and jansenism just because that's obnoxious to the church and causes her harm and um and the really in a way that's not uh, dissimilar to our own era you have a huge weight of unbelieving uh unbelieving clergy um uh weighing down the church i mean the, the single greatest number of subscribers to the encyclopedia were clergy um uh, so um uh yeah so 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 all of that is is destroyed the old i mean uh, amusingly a napoleon's tomb in les invalides it has uh, it has some um, it one of the achievements which is uh, laid into the marble around his tomb of, of his reign is restoring the gallican church but in fact napoleon completely destroyed the gallican church because but by cutting a deal with the pope and rationalizing the structure of the french church he he um forever ensured the victory of ultramontanism over gallicanism um and um so so all of those things which were weighing down uh, the church in the late 18th century are destroyed in, in the fires of the revolution or, or uh, are mortally wounded. And, um, and the result is that the church is able to operate far more freely to, to return as Leo does in his social teaching to first principles and proceed from there like a, a very viciously pruned uh, um, tree. Um, and I think that is is where the revival is coming from. But the the pruning was not done with benign intention. The pruning was done by someone who wanted to kill the tree, and that and that force is still active, um, and still wants to kill the tree. Um, uh, so I, I think whereas the Counter Reformation is a conscious attempt to prevent the victory of Protestantism, um, and the people who are implementing the Counter Reformation are um, doing so because they want the church to revive, hence the upper echelons of temporal society are part of the project. Um, the, the pruning which leads to the 19th century revival is executed by forces which intend the destruction of the church. So it's a very, and, and it's, a, it's an unintended side effect from their point of view that it leads to a revival of the church. And it also, one of the problems with the revival is that it's so grounded in a sort of totally unfettered, rather hysterical ultramontanism, which leads to this sort of Napoleonic destruction and, 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 and rewriting of, of the whole of canon law, um, totally centralized ecclesiastical structure with all bishops eventually being appointed by the Pope, and then the complete reimagining of the liturgy. And eventually this... Um, this destroys well the the, the unfettered ultramontanism reaches its climax in the 60s um at the same time as the decision by leo to um and pius the ninth um after 1849 uh to turn to first principles rather than trying to seek an accommodation with modernity to show that I think he says in Libertas something like anything, anything which is 
desirable in in these liberties is uh, is found in the church, uncankered by um, uh, uncankered by air. I've forgotten this. He puts it much better than I am. I'm not paraphrasing it very well. But um, this decision is set aside as a prudential decision in the 60s and a return essentially to the ecclesiastical policy of the first few years of Pius the Ninth Pontificate. Is 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 executed, and and that's what. But it, but that that could always happen. So the problem with centering absolutely everything on the papal prudential judgment is it's is at some point a bad prudential judgment is going to be made, and 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 the whole thing is going to and there'll be nothing else, nothing to catch the fall. Yeah. So I think that's it's because the revival results from a pruning which was not intended as a pruning but as a destruction that you don't have the you don't have all the echelons of society entering into that because in in the counter-reformation what you've got is christendom has been destroyed but there are still individual nations which are loyal to catholicism and therefore within the context of those individual nations it's possible to have a complete catholic revival and but that that revival is vitiated by the fact that it gives undue emphasis to the national power um, which is one of the things, one of the problems of Gallicanism. Um, whereas the 19th century revival results from a universal assault um, and a universal destruction um, uh, of Christendom, which leads to a pruning which triggers a revival. But it, but it, but it doesn't, the destruction is still universal. The elites are lost to the cause, qua elites in every land. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's a compelling account, Dr. Fimister. I think, well, Christopher Clark, who's a secular historian, he nevertheless offers quite a um, representative vignette uh, in this regard when he says that um, the early and middle decades of the 19th century, so quite soon after the French Revolution, uh, nevertheless saw a massive expansion of confessional commitment among the Catholic populations of Europe and the emergence of a more cohesive and Rome-centred clergy. There was a spectacular rise in the number numbers of persons entering holy orders and a proliferation of new religious houses, evangelizing missions and devotional associations. Many areas witnessed a sharp and sustained upswing in the rate of lay observance. And then the example I wanted to uh, mention this time uh, can be illustrated by reference to one of the most celebrated manifestations of Catholic mass devotion in the post-Napoleonic era the Trier pilgrimage of 1844. In the space of a few weeks, some 500,000 Catholic pilgrims converged on the city of Trier, population 20,000, lured by the opportunity to view and venerate the robe reputed by local tradition to have been worn by Christ until his crucifixion. The pilgrimage demonstrated, among other things, the enhanced authority of the clergy among the masses of the faithful. Whereas late 18th century pilgrimages had tended to be anarchic, ill-disciplined affairs. Uh, the Trier pilgrims appeared in well-ordered ranks under the supervision of their priests. In a classic account of these events, the German historian Wolfgang Schieder discerned in the Trier pilgrimage evidence of a counter-revolutionary alliance between Catholic clergy and Pr- Prussian authorities. There's the Vienna settlement uh, to which you alluded, whose purpose was to channel latent social discontent into a politically harmless act of collect- collective devotion. Um, so that's as early as 1844, but it continues through the 19th century, this Catholic revival. Um, and Andrew Willard Jones offers an interesting account for this seeming paradox. He says that this paradox dissipates 
when we understand, quote, that, that part of the reason for the rise of Christian observance was the decline of its social relevance. Because Christianity was of little importance to the great structures and powers of society, it was free to spread within the private lives of citizens. This was modern Christianity. However, Christianity as a mere religion and not as a civilization. This tended to be a sentimental Christianity of home and hearth and no longer the basis of social life itself. Most Christians' primary allegiance was now to their nation or perhaps their political party and not to a universal and global Christianity. By around 1900 in Europe, we should see Christianity as a particularly popular cult within the modern pantheon. Paganism is of course polytheistic. And so the gods of modern paganism were indifferent to the existence of the God of Christianity, as long as Christians reserved ultimate devotion for them, as long as the most profound sacrifices, such as death on the battlefield, were made to them alone. In the modern regimes, there could be many religions, but only one state, only one economy, only one society, and increasingly only one ideology. The Catholic Church alone retained even the pretense toward being a focus of international unity. And as we have seen, this was mostly theoretical. I mean, I think the, the you, you have to... The problem is, in 1814-15, they didn't, Metternich decided against any idea of restoring the Holy Roman Empire. And, and there are a number of different reasons for that. Um, one, of course, is that it's, it's easier from his point of view to have an automatic hereditary succession of the House of Austria to an imperial title, rather than having to negotiate uh, an election. Um, uh, he would have, in order to secure an electoral body that would have um, more or less guaranteed a Habsburg succession, he would have needed to resurrect the prince bishoprics of Cologne, Mans, and Trier, um, uh, which, you know, uh, was going to be tricky to negotiate. Um, and uh, so you can see why they did it. But the, I mean, the great forces of conservatism um, in continental Europe in 1814 are Prussia, Russia and Austria, and only one of those is Catholic. So it would be bizarre for Prussia, Russia and Austria to connive uh, at, the, at the recreation of the Holy Roman Empire, which is based on a, a universal Catholicism in Western Christendom. Um, but having done that, there is, it, it ends up because there is no essential connection between um, uh, dynastic conservatism and uh, and a Christian social order. The the connection, however deep, is remains accidental. Um, uh, simply uh, restoring a dynastically conservative uh, social order, political order, in 1814-15 is not going to restore Christendom, even if even if it's going to look a little bit like Christendom at that point and that's why the tendency towards nationalism as an alternative raison d'etre for european states is is irresistible um because because without a restored christendom there's no there's something else is going to have to be found and this situation in which the church is actually a an individual cult within a polytheistic pagan context that Andrew Willard-Jones is describing there is going to be is, is going to be impossible to resist 
And and I think that's part of lies behind the Leonine project because he's trying to disentangle the first principles for however long a, a struggle to try and have an actually essentially Christian civil order instead of one in which Christianity competes as the most impressive contestant under the secular judge. And I think that in a way that's... that's um, uh, the, the difficulty is that 1789 is inextricably linked with 1776. The United States of America is the first country in, in, in the Latin West to not be confessionally Christian since the fourth century. Um, and when, uh, when the crown heads of Europe were packing their bags to go to Vienna, the White House was in flames in Washington, D.C. Um, uh, because, because Britain had stormed uh, Washington. Now, it seems to me that if you want, if rather than a kind of Disneyland Christendom, which the Vienna settlement gave us, if you wanted to restore actual Christendom uh, of the kind, but organically, so that instead of having the separation between the, the Royalist project and the Leonine project, if you, if you, if you try to keep them together, as it were, then you would have needed Britain to move its victorious Napoleonic armies to North America and undo 1776. The fact that, uh, that 1776 was not undone meant that the, that the organic pre-revolutionary Christendom, for all its defects, uh, couldn't be restored. That the logic of not restoring the Holy Roman Empire and not undoing 1776 means that, um, that the Disneyland Christendom will eventually fall apart, which is what happens over the course of, 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 of the period 1814 to 1914. Uh, and they try and do their Faustian bargains with, with nationalism and it doesn't work because they're not, the borders aren't in the right place. Metternich ignores nationalism at the Congress of Vienna and um, and so it's already partially wrecked, um, well, more than partially wrecked by 1914. But but it's 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 terminally ill. Faustian bargains with nationalism or not, it's terminally ill. And there's and once the Faustian bargain fratricidal universal civil uh, apocalypse 1914 to 1918, then then that's it. That was very interesting, and I might not be quite as uh, critical as you towards the pastiche Christendom uh, of the uh, the concert of Europe. Um, but nevertheless, I would I would agree that those nonetheless I would I would agree that those underlying pathologies uh, were very much there and uh, growing in strength. Um, so I'd like to touch on what's going on in 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 men's hearts, which is the most imponderable, um, but it's it's quite profound and it relates to this. So again, I, I would like to quote something from uh, Andrew Willard Jones's work here, um, The Two Cities, History of Christian Politics. And he, he mentions this, how the pontificate of Leo XIII, after the conquest of the papal states by the Risorgimento, marks a shift in the church's orientation towards the world where the church is clearly now something obviously distinct from society itself, uh, European society. And socially, this is also occurring through the creation of non-Christian mass culture. 
So when I talked about the, the synthesis, the French Revolution, the Industrial Revolution, the Industrial Revolution is massification, which is mass media, mass education, you know, uh, mass propaganda, mass nationalism, these, these forces which are uh, creating this, this alternative mass culture to Christianity in Europe. So the church is now in this position of being a critic of society. And uh, he, he says this, he says, Leo was missing something profound. Quote, Leo and most other churchmen were missing the profound importance of the swelling nationalism in the West. They were concerned with ideas, with systems of thought, with truth and error, with doctrine. Nationalism, however, was concerned with glory, with pride, with the heart. Nationalism stirred, stirred passions, and increasing, increasingly the ideologies served as little more than intellectual trappings for a deeper nationalism. Throughout Leo's writing, we get the sense that he mistakenly thinks that the ideologies are what is stirring the populace to new things, when in fact those ideologies themselves were being steadily incorporated into rival nationalisms. Leo was arguing against the heirs to the rationalist enlightenment. History, however, was shifting in favour of the heirs of Machiavelli, Napoleon, Bismarck and Garibaldi, even if those heirs were slowly breaking into ideology-inspired factions, liberal nationalism, socialist nationalism and racial nationalism. The next hundred years would be about nationalism's victory over its ideological rivals and then its self-destruction in the unprecedented horrors of modern warfare. I'm not sure that, that, the, that the causation goes that way round. It seems to me that the contractualist political errors of uh, modernity are derived from nominalism, that once man isn't a social and political animal, then he, the natural uh, perfect society um, ceases to have uh, warrant for obedience in itself, um, and it has to get it from somewhere else. And it's searching for that warrant in various places, either in James VI's uh, Divine Right of Kings or in various forms of contractualism in the early part of the modern period before the French Revolution. Um, and um, the Divine Right of Kings is too implausible a, uh, a doctrine. It, it, it's unsustainable. I mean, he, he, um, even, even James VI is too embarrassed to... to give it full expression in his own writings. Filmer has to step in with what Rousseau calls um, King Adam and Emperor Noah. Um, but as Rousseau says, you know, when we've done the comprehensive genealogical research that we need to do, maybe it will turn out that I am the rightful heir of Noah or Adam and not, um, and not Louis Capet. Um, and um, so the, um, so I mean, it, it's not sustainable as an alternative so the result is having uh, dislodged real metaphysical realism from its proper place. Uh, it has it, the great problem of contractualism is where who decides who are the parties to the contract, and so uh, and and there's 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 only two real ways of resolving that. One is to have uh, an an exaggerated and hysterical nationalism, which essentially which makes the nation this kind of reified. Uh, independent reality, um, which eventually justifies itself by means of Darwinism and mutates into Nazism, or you have to have a universal contract. Um, and of course, one of the one of the 
elements of contractualism and all its manifestations is that the people who will find themselves outside the contract have no moral value and are outside the protection of the laws, which what allows for the kind of genocidal insanity of Nazism and communism. Um, so it seems to me that Leo is right that the um, the, the problem the, the, the nationalism is a result of the uh, the ideology of the Enlightenment, uh, and and he's right. He is attacking the source. He's not attacking a mere symptom. Um, and I, I think um, uh, I, I think he could have it had had the return to. I mean, I think the the over-the-top ultramontanism was a problem, and I'm not sure how that was going to be resolved in any way other than testing it to destruction. But, um, but I think, I think um, the results which he managed to achieve prior to the 60s through the pursuit of that policy, through saying these are, these are the errors, these are why they're wrong, and uh, this is the alternative, um, I think it did yield it did yield great results and and I think it's imaginable that it could have succeeded and I can't think of a, of another strategy that would have succeeded I because and I'm not being so so critical of pastiche Christendom as as perhaps you're suggesting in the sense that I think it it it, it, it needn't have been a pastiche but in order to not be a pastiche it, it would have to have gone the whole way and restored the Holy Roman Empire. I mean, and you can, there are ways you can imagine that happening. There's the Soloviev solution, as it were, which is, I mean, which Alexander I of Russia really was considering converting to Catholicism shortly before he died. I mean, if, if you'd had a... By some accounts, he did. Oh, really? Well, that's interesting. But, but I mean, if, you, if, if, you, if you'd lived another 10 years and converted, then, I mean, if you'd had an Austrian-Russian alliance uh, which could have plausibly presented itself as a revived paleo-christian settlement rather than this neo-christian pastiche uh, then then it's um then you can there are versions where you can imagine that happening but it didn't happen so and by by the mid 19th century it wasn't going to happen i mean by the time Soloviev if Slaviev had written his amazing passage all about some um, the key bearer of the kingdom of heaven you know bring about this the, the Catholic Third Rome, uh, I don't know if you've come across it in his Russia and the Universal Church. Um, if he'd written that in, of course he wasn't alive, but if he'd written that in 19, 19, sorry, 1814, instead of um, whenever it was he wrote it, um, uh, then, you know, it might have had, because Leo XIII read it and was amused. Uh, <laughs> nice idea, but slightly impractical, or something's roughly what he said. Um, but it, it was impractical because the 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 Disneyland Christendom was was too moribund for for to be revived by such a strategy by that point. So, to Jones's point, do you think that Leo is putting his finger on this development, which is that European man has? a large part of European man has apostatized to a new religion of nationalism. I think that's true, but I think that's a consequence of the errors that Leo is attacking. I don't think, because I don't know, I mean, I, I haven't read what uh, you're quoting there in context, but, but if, um, if uh, I, I don't think there's a, there's a fundamental nationalism which simply adorns itself with a variety of different grotesque ideologies. 
but the, the fundamental reality is nationalism. I think there's a, there's a fundamental grotesque ideology um, which, which is going to express itself either in ideological universalism or in hysterical nationalism. And um, yeah, and, and they, they will then take various different forms. There'll be different ideological universalism. So, so the, the desire for an ideological universalism or a hysterical nationalism is more fundamental than the particular form that the nationalism takes or a particular universal ideology. That's true. Um, but the, but the, the need to go for one of those two options is itself based on a more profound uh, original ideology, which is the Enlightenment. So, and, and Leo is taking, is, is, Leo is trying to attack the root because he's trying to attack the Enlightenment. So we've got this, this, this tension across European society, uh, whereby a large part of that society, and particularly the elites, have given their hearts to these new gods, the nation, the race, the people, the class, the market, the party science, progress, technology, and yet we still have the, the customs and manners of Christendom in, in society. It's this, this contrast, which I think an aesthetic like steampunk tries to, uh, in a sense, uh, put its finger on. But overall, there's very much, again, within the elites, there's this anthropology of conflict where either for liberal society is made up of individuals who are in competition or for socialists classes are similarly in competition but everywhere there's this this denial of of harmony we've got notions of uh, charles darwin's theory of the survival of the fittest seemingly conquering the debate on the the evolution of animal species meaning that life is a result of unrelenting struggle and competition the strong survive the weak die and this is, this is a return of pagan gods, the valorization of, of human power, so that, as Benedict XV says, by, the, by 1915, the precepts and practices of Christian wisdom cease to be observed in the ruling of states. I'm interested in, uh, I hope I'm not interrupting you there, I, I'm interested in the question of whether or not this, the competitive, the, the sort of vicious you know, law of the jungle com competition between classes or nations or individuals. I mean, I think there's some, there's definitely a lot of truth to that. And I, I remember thinking that since I was a child, or at least a teenager, that, that you had these kind of different, you've got the kind of market uh, war of every individual consumer against every individual consumer. And then you've got the Marxist war of the classes, and then you've got the, the fascist or Nazi war of the nations or races. Um, but is that... Uh, what I, I I don't know the answer to this is is that essential to the original ideology of modernity um, uh, that I'm saying underlines underlies the the uh, the nationalisms and the ideological um, states which then uh, uh, take second order ideologies on themselves as their own raison d'etre is is that universal war of everyone against everyone is that is that in that ideology already, or is it uh, a kind of unexpected addition resulting from the origin of species? How, how much is, is Darwin himself, and of course the question of this partly relies on how accurate or not 
the Darwinian and neo-Darwinian account of origins is, which is a completely different question. But how far is Darwin a result of this general ideological movement opposed to the church? And he's reframing biological reality in those terms, which then uh, provides a, uh, an origin myth and a raison d'etre for these ideologies in their fratricidal uh, progress, or how far is it just a completely random additional factor that enters into the story and, and adds this fratricidal element? Because I can see how uh, contractualism renders those outside of your contract uh, beyond the protection of the moral law. So I can see it, it, it prepares the ground for the universal bloodbath in that sense, but it, it doesn't necessarily imply that you have to have a, a universal bloodbath, whereas, whereas um, Darwinism kind of implies that you do have to have a universal bloodbath. And I mean, he already saw that himself. I mean, in The Descent of Man, he's talking about the importance of, you know, I mean, he doesn't put it quite this bluntly, but he's pretty close to putting it this bluntly, of euthanizing the, uh, the sick and the, uh, and, and, and the, the inferior and, um, and that the differences between different human races, so-called, so are, are analogous to the, oh, not analogous, but are the same as the differences between different biological species. And it's important and if I understand correctly, he, he um, dealt with the missing link problem by suggesting that once an evolutionary jump was completed, the new stage would eradicate the intermediary forms and that, that human society would also attempt to do this in due course. I mean, he actually, uh, I don't know if you come across the quotation, it's quite terrifying. Um, uh, he, so that's um, the for the Neanderthals or something? Uh, well, he... Um, uh, um, uh, it's 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 amazing, really. Um, I mean, he he, it it's it really is a charter for Auschwitz. Um, yeah, he says um, uh, at some future. This is a, this is the Descent of Man, Part One, Chapter Six. He says at some future period, not very distant as measured by centuries, the civilized races of man will almost certainly exterminate and replace the savage races throughout the world. At the same time, the anthropomorphous apes, as Professor Schaffhausen has remarked, will no doubt be exterminated. The break between man and his nearest allies will then be wider, for it will intervene between man in a more civilised state, as we may hope, even than the Caucasian, and some ape as low as a baboon, instead of as now between the Negro or Australian and the gorilla. Mm. I, mean, that, I mean, it's unbelievable. Mm. Um, uh, but so... <laughs> Yeah, it's insane. I mean, this is the great hero. I mean, he's on which banknote is he? Is he on in Britain, or is he? Is he? Have they replaced him at this point? But I mean, uh, I mean, it's 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 you can smell the sulphur coming off the page. Um, but I mean, what interesting is whether or not um, whether or not he's some um, whether or not that is is this just an additional baddie? The, 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 is, is this an additional evil force that comes in at this point? that's unrelated to the previous development of, 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 of the pathological version of Western civilization in the Enlightenment? Or, or, is, he, or is his thought um, really explained as a development of that pathology? I don't know the answer to that. Partly a knowledge of biology would help me, I expect. Yes. I mean, it seems to me that 
one would think that he would be downstream of a Hobbesian anthropology, then mm-hmm. state of nature. Um, that would kind of be in the air, as it were, uh, when when regarding the origin of species or natural history. Yeah, I mean, in, in this sort of executive summary of the three ages of the interior life, a little pamphlet version, Garrigou has this remark where he says um, uh, that um, uh, through, um, through not realising that common goods are immaterial and therefore not diminished by being shared, um, uh, man... Um, uh, modern man uh, brings about the various ruinous ideologies of 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 the time in which Garrigou is writing, um, because and I suppose this this explains the Malthusian background to Darwin in, in that, that that because you don't realise that the highest goods of mankind are immaterial, and you think they're essentially material, therefore everything is reframed as a as a, a vicious competition for those resources, and there's no way of getting around that. So so. So I suppose in that sense, it certainly is hardwired into the central pathology. Yeah, and this atmosphere of competition was pervasive in Europe in 1914, not just between individuals, classes, but also between nations and empires. But a general war did seem hard to imagine. Despite there being an arms build-up, the economies were so intertwined that some analysts thought that war would be basically impossible particularly, for example, for the uh, Anglophone nations like Britain and the United States, the commercial interests were paramount. So it was thought that peaceful competition was the order of the day. Nevertheless, and and the build-up of military power, such as the naval race, the naval arms race, was seen as prohibitive of large-scale warfare. If you go to the World War I Museum uh, and monument in... um, in, uh, in Kansas City, uh, you probably haven't, um, but uh, um, they, there's, it's a very uh, extensive museum and, uh, and they have um, uh, the first item in uh, the first room as you turn into it is causes of World War One, And the first item is a copy of the origin of species by natural selection or the preservation of favorite places in the struggle for life by Charles Darwin, um, which I can't imagine that happening in Britain. Um, but uh, it's very striking when you see it there. Um, I mean, I think a lot of people were anticipating a general European war for quite a long time during the, during the first decade of the decade and a half of the 20th century. Um, and I mean, I, I, I agree um, uh, that, that it, it's, it's hard to imagine a war between Britain and the United States. But I mean, obviously, the naval arms race, arms race, even though Cecil Rhodes was originally planning to leave his fortune to fund the reconquest of the United States by Britain. Um, but uh, the um, uh, but the um, uh, he um, yeah, the, I mean, the the the, uh, the naval arms race, of course, is between Britain and 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 uh prussian germany um i mean i mean you very much get the sense that the the, uh, the, the weird joy at the outbreak of world war one in in 1914 you get this this sense that you know this is going to be a wonderful kind of you know the ultimate olympic games in which we discover which is the top nation by by true by a true darwinian test um I mean, I th- that that was a very widespread sentiment, ex- uh, conscious or unconscious. 
Yes, that's very um, well described in in this book, The Rites of Spring by Modric Eckstein's, mm-hmm. which describes that jubilation across all European capitals, where warfare was conceived of as this, the, in these vigorous terms of, of being like a, as you say, like a national testing and a national kind of cleansing or even a baptism. But this, this question of the different nations, I'd like to just look at the Kaiserreich at uh, Germany, because uh, obviously arguments have raised as to who is to blame for the outbreak of the war. There's a Polish thinker, Jan Potocka, who's obviously probably going to have his own sort of prejudices, perhaps, about, about Germany. But he said that basically what we saw in the 19th century was the emergence of, so we've looked at the ideologies, we've looked at the philosophical and anthropological side. This strange paradox of, of Catholic revival, but also uh, increasing secularization and this division in the hearts of uh, European men between positivism, technology, science, nationalism, but also adherence to traditional customs and quite strong Christian popular piety as well. That's, that's where you join us. Uh, so welcome. Well, thank you. And again, sorry to be late. I, um, the the, fle- the uh, spirit was willing, but the flesh was weak. Uh, the, uh, it will, it's, it's quite true. 1914 was a period of tremendous contrasts. Uh, everything was becoming ever more itself, as you might say. The Catholics were, had a great zeal, but so did the scientificists and the eugenicists, uh, the liberals, if you will. Uh, and so too did the nascent socialists. So too in uh, non-Catholic countries did the quote-unquote conservatives. They all had a, a, a drive to them that's really a, a difficult for us to imagine today. Uh, one of the ways this was dealt with in day-to-day life prior to 1914, and in places like the Netherlands and uh, Switzerland to a degree afterwards, was what was called pillarization. And what this meant uh, was that the Catholics, the liberals, whomever you like, had separate uh, social clubs, separate uh, athletic teams, separate everything. So that you could literally live your life within one segment of the population. You could spend all your time with Catholics or all your time with liberals or all or whatever you like in a way and in a large way that's very difficult for us to uh, imagine today. The, the uh, labor movement was divided along similar lines. Uh, obviously, the socialists had a lot of drive. But so did the Catholics, or the Catholic labor unions in the countries that had them, uh, the quote-unquote Christian labor unions in the non-Catholic countries. These, they were all, on the one hand, they had settled to some degree for their position, but they were filled nevertheless, whatever that particular position was, but they were nevertheless filled with a tremendous drive to, um, for want of a better word, evangelize the others. Uh, and then... You had the powers of the state sort of keeping the whole thing in stasis. And that balance was, needless to say, uh, overturned by the Great War. Do you think that um, uh, do you think that that pillarization is a system within which the cause of the church could have prevailed or, or was it inevitable that we would end up thinking of ourselves as 
one, uh, I used this analogy earlier, a one brand of toothpaste uh, in a market uh, for, so Brian Harrison somewhere, so Father Brian Harrison somewhere says some, says that Catholics can have a tendency in the context of a liberal social order to forget that we're essentially claiming to be the only people selling toothpaste and all the other toothpaste manufacturers sell acidic cream that destroys your teeth. Um, and, and we start to rebrand ourselves as just selling the best brand of toothpaste. Um, uh, and that essentially destroys the coherence of the faith because we're either the Catholic Church is the mystical body of Christ or Catholicism is false. Um, so, so do you think that we could have won with We could have simply expanded our pillar uh, to include the whole of society ultimately, or do you think that that, that accepting the rules of pillarization was going to was going to ultimately undermine the coherence of the faith? Well, I, uh, I well, first of course, what you say is completely true. <laughs> once, uh, once the church turns her back on the Great Commission to save souls, she doesn't really have a reason to exist. I mean, any cleric who believes that his sacraments are nice but not essential needs a real job somewhere, <laughs> uh, preferably not in anything religious. Um, and that was the great, the great challenge that we failed, as you might say, because a Catholic Church imbued with the theology of salvation, with the theology of evangelization, with the idea that we have the, the truth of the sacraments Christ gave man to escape the trap of being human via the fall. With that, pillarization, just like the, the ancient monasteries, just like all sorts of various Catholic ventures uh, in different areas, could have been a stepping stone to the evangelization of society. But... As we know from looking at, this, at the history of Catholic theology at the same time, uh, it too was becoming more and more liberal. The rise of modernism, uh, which would, in a sense, have its fulfillment after the Great War in the um, liberal wing of the uh, Ressourcement, the Nouvelle Théologie, uh, until finally you have a man like Karl Rahner obliterate the difference between grace and nature so that nature does not need redemption. It's redeemed by virtue of being. That, and that is what most Catholics hold today. As Benedict XVI said, uh, most Catholics are functional universalists. Well, that process began during the period of discussion. Pope St. Pius X, as we know, saw it, did his best to go after it, and one has to say rather sadly failed. Um, but again, without the majority of Catholics being imbued with that sort of missionary spirit, lay as well as clerical, with the majority of us in, in America, of course, our version of that particular deal with the devil was uh, basically to settle for respectability in return for not trying to evangelize the United States to any great degree. And we won. You know, we got our side. We got one of our own as president the very day I was born. <laughs> and now one sits as president today. <laughs> what a victory for us all, I'm sure. <laughs> Do you think uh, Pius X failed because his 
measures were relaxed after his death? Or do you think there was something in, uh, misconceived in the way in which he attempted it in the first place? Well, I would be loath to... Um... I would be loath to uh, condemn his tactics because they worked in the immediate. Uh, probably if Benedict the Fifteenth had been of a different mind, uh, if uh, St. Pius X's various things had continued, it would have helped. But again, I, you know, it's a funny thing. I was just reading the works of uh, one of the books of Matthias Schaben, who was a very great German theologian before World War I and after, I think, a bit. Um, amazing stuff. Writes with fire. Dismissed today as a mere uh, uh, neo-scholastic. But in truth, he understood what people like Dom Marmion understood, what people like Dom Gerogier understood that the faith is a fire, that it's, uh, uh, that it's simply amazing. That sense of awe and wonder at our faith that those men had, and a lot of others of the same sort, that is what was needed. And you see, the problem is, at the end of the day, you come down to a chicken and egg kind of thing. Um, if St. Pius X had had better minions, perhaps things would have been better. If we Catholics, or if our grandfathers, great-grandfathers had had more zeal, perhaps things would have been different. You know, at the end of the day, you come down once more, as you always do, to grace versus free will. And then, then you're sort of stuck. You can't go any further. I would say, though, that probably Benedict XV did not help things. I don't think, as some did, because he was Rampola's secretary, I don't think that he was um, out to wreck the church. But I do think it was a short-sighted and party-inspired measure. I mean, don't, don't think, and people have this misapprehension, don't think that there weren't and always haven't been parties, factions, in the governance of the church. There always have been. Um, when St. Pius X died, his Secretary of State, uh, Colonel Mary Delval, uh, saw Benedict at his coronation, if I remember the story correctly. And Benedict looked at him sort of triumphantly and said, the uh, stone that the um, builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And uh, Mary Delval replied, and it is great in our sight. <laughs> But uh, the truth is that they represented two very different ways of approaching the faith, uh, which in those days were not that far apart. See, this is another thing, too, that, that history and church history in particular presses on one. If you look at the, at the Guelphs and the Ghibellines the, of the Middle Ages, the pro-papal pro versus pro-imperial, they were very opposed. They were very much opposed to each other. They fought battles, all this. But if they had been confronted with Luther, <laughs> they would have closed ranks. And similarly, I think that if Luther and Loyola had, uh, had seen Robespierre, 
But, I mean, I don't want to minimize the Lutheran heresy, but my point is that very often, as history moves on, past struggles don't seem quite as important. Well, it's interesting the way in which liberals tend to identify with historic figures who, who, who they would, who on paper they have very little in common with. So, so, you know, the Giblines would be more favoured than the Gelfs. Luther is favoured. Uh, Darwin is favoured, etc., etc. Um, you know, Joseph II. All these people, in theory, are supposed to be. Um, uh, a, they're seen as part of of because they're moving in the direction which the current generation of liberals wants us to move in. At least that's how they perceive it. Whereas when a Catholic looks back at the people that he identifies with in history, you know, uh, Boethius, St. Augustine, Thomas More, Thomas Aquinas, you find that you do actually just actually agree with what they actually say. No. It's a striking difference between the two. Well, it's, it's because liberalism is inherently... Uh, destructive not creative and the thing is the, the figures that they look to i mean take joseph ii for instance since i'm sitting here in austria <laughs> he on the one hand he did a great deal of damage to the church especially by suppressing monasteries pilgrimages interfering with liturgy etc 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 but where he was different from people like henry the eighth or the spanish and portuguese liberals of the 1830s who were great monastery suppressors was that he didn't suppress them to put the money in his own pocket. He used the money for church institutions, building more parishes, because in his mind, it was more important that there be far more parishes all over the place than monasteries. Now, he was wrong, in my humble opinion, but it's not the same thing, because he believed that the sacraments were important for the people to get. Well, that's because he believed in a in a natural religion of which Catholicism happened to be the historic expression in Austria, not because he was uh, filled with zeal for a slightly misconceived version of the faith. I, I, I tell you, between him and Henry, there's an ocean. And the the other thing, too, as far as his, uh, as his natural religion goes, he did hear of confession on his deathbed, which unfortunately his predecessor, Maximilian II, did not. <laughs> the crypto-Protestant. He refused. Not one of the best Habsburgs, Maximilian <laughs> second. We try not to talk about it in polite society. <laughs> am I allowed to ask another question or am I stealing uh, the direction of the discussion? No, no, please, please. <laughs> um, I, I, I was, in, in regard to the First World War, something interests me, which is that the, the period between World War One and World War Two um, is a is again one in which the sort of Leonine revival seems very strong. The church seems to be present itself as a comprehensive doctrine, uh, which is much more attractive to most people than uh, fascism or Nazism or communism. And there's, in a certain sense, there's an intellectual and cultural flourishing of the church between World War One and World War Two. Um, Pius X is said to have been very melancholy uh, about the um, the development of World War One uh, in the last months of his life, uh, for obvious reasons. I mean, obviously, the World War One is in itself a catastrophe. But what interests me is is how far is World War One a um, 
how far is World War One an ecclesiastical catastrophe? Is 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 it a reductio ad absurdum of modernity that would ultimately have benefited the church by showing the awful direction in which uh, the the ideology of modernity was destined to lead, or um, or did it destroy our chances of achieving something which we might have otherwise achieved? Both at once, <laughs> in my humble opinion. I know how that sounds, but. Uh, on the one hand, it uh, the destruction of Austria-Hungary and of the, uh, the Catholic-German states um, was a terrible, terrible blow to the church. Uh, it isn't helped by the fact that, the, to be brutally honest, uh, Cardinal Piffel of Vienna uh, sold Blessed Emperor Karl out to Karl Renner. Um, but it was a popular thing to do in those days, lest we forget. Yeah. Uh, I mean, sell Blessed Emperor Carl out. A lot of people did it. But uh, the very concept of a Catholic state as it had been lived was pretty much restricted to Spain after that. And then after 1931 and the Second Republic, no. Uh, there was not a country in Europe that reflected the historic uh, Catholic noose. But having said, but uh, there was, as you say, yet another great interwar Catholic revival. A lot of intellectuals saw the evils of modernity. But here, here we come to a very strange thing. And it's something that, frankly, I've worked very hard to try to get my head around for years, and I have yet to finish. Basically, you look at all the Catholic parties and movements and groups in Europe between the wars and in Latin America as well. And they were faced uh, with a choice which became ever more pressing as the 20s and then the 30s went on into World War II. You could, on the one hand, though there was no Catholic power at all. So you could, on the one hand, figure, well, there are elements of fascism, elements of uh, the Nazis, elements of this and that that we can collaborate with and maybe possibly get, accomplish our program. A lot of people did that. Of course, they were destroyed with the Axis. The others, uh, for very good reasons, I think, uh, joined the resistance and collaborated with liberals, socialists, and communists to fight the Axis. But after the war, uh, they were pretty much the fathers of Christian democracy. And Christian democracy was limited in several ways. Firstly, because the, it was really tied to the church. And the theological decay, uh, which I mentioned earlier, had, of course, continued all these years. And this would, this would spell the doom for the Christian Democratic parties in the late 60s, early 70s. Secondly, their great project, the Union of Europe, to bring about a uh, sort of neo-Carolingian uh, space it was a beautiful dream, a beautiful idea. But the problem was that all of their partners, the socialists and the liberals, were uh, opposed to it. Opposed, that, opposed to a, the, a, a Europe as a neo-Carolingian right. construct. They wanted... United States of Europe. 
they wanted, well, they wanted what we have. And this, the, the, the Christian Democratic side was certainly the strongest in the immediate wake of, the, of World War II. But after Vatican II, when the uh, various hierarchies declared that uh, not just the Catholic confessional state, but any Catholic privilege in politics was to be renounced, uh, this was on a hierarchy by hierarchy uh, level, especially. Um, the strength went out of them. So much so that by the end of the 60s, the early 70s, when uh, through across Europe, the Christian Democrats were gearing up for fighting over contraception and abortion, um, <laughs> the bishops of each country pulled the rug right out from under them. Um, and so no longer receiving any support from the institutional church, as we say, they became, the Christian Democratic bodies in Western Europe became the um, jobs for the boys' businesses that they are now. But that, that seems to imply that the project was not misconceived. It was just that there was a treason of clerics. I well, mean, that's, that you, you touched on another issue. Was it misconceived? Uh, is in fact the is it in fact impossible as uh, to uh, rally to the republic? Was Leo Thirteenth wrong? That's the ultimate question here. Yes, and that uh, that's a big question. Personally, <laughs> I think he was, but I, I also don't think I'm infallible. But nevertheless, it's let's put it this way: theoretically, anything could happen. But what did happen <laughs> was pretty bad. And the thing was, uh, Leo's Rallyement was disastrous in the immediate because it split the French church and smashed its political effectiveness within the Third Republic. But it didn't even accomplish its goal because the Third Republic broke the Concordat anyway. But is some, couldn't you argue that, that uh, the Rayamon was a response to the, to the uh, disastrous splitting of the French church rather than a cause of it, in the sense that the royalists were already bleeding support uh, before Leo ever launched it? I mean, they'd lost control of the organs of French government by the end of the um, 1870s. That didn't look like they were going to get that back. It looked like a sort of inevitable process of decline. And you had significant numbers of people in France who were a, a sympathetic to or even zealous for a Catholic social order, but were not interested in restorationism. And by tying the Catholic cause to restorationism, um, uh, the royalists were splitting its efficacy in France. I mean, that was Leo XIII's argument. I heard the other day, I've forgotten what the source for it is, but I heard that he even said in frustration towards the end of his life to somebody that, that if the royalists had simply accepted the Rayamon, they probably would have been able to restore the monarchy uh, in, in the sense that had there been a united um, uh, Catholic political movement in France that was officially indifferent in regard to the form of regime, uh, but if it had then restored a Catholic a social and political order in France, uh, a majority of them would probably have wanted to restore the monarchy and therefore the monarchy would have been restored. It might have been, but, you know, that's a very, again, this is why I'm not quick to condemn Leo. I'm not sitting in his shoes. I mean, you've got to remember that for the Catholic royalist, 
uh, for Leo to ask him to rally to the Republic was to ask him to commit treason. It really is that blatant. But is some, but it, given that, that, you know, the powers that be are ordained of God and the Third Republic was established on the ruins of the Second Empire, not on the ruins of the, um, of the, of the 1814 restoration, it's, it's not clear why you're committing treason by being loyal to the current regime. I, I assure you that patriotism is not always logical. You may not believe me. No, no, you may not. You may think that patriotism always makes for a clear head. I don't know that that's true. Yeah. And in truth, uh, you know, again, and this is why one has to be careful in judging these past figures. Either way. That's why, as I say, I'm not, I'm not going to come down with all four feet on, Louis, on Leo XIII, because, of course, he had a terrible thing to deal with. But the point I'm making is that so did his opponents in the, in the Rallye mm-hmm. Uh Similarly, the Hobson's choice I earlier described between the access and the resistance and the Hobson's choice of Christian democracy. You see, we have the benefit of 2020 hindsight. All of them lacked it. That's point number one. Point number two, since that time, we have not been especially effective in halting the rot. Again, I hate to shock anyone in our audience, uh, whether they be male, female, or any of the 3,900 other genders we have to uh, obey by federal law. But the fact of the matter is we have to deal with the legacy of several centuries of constant defeat. And that, incidentally, is one of the reasons why a number of the fathers at Vatican II wanted to abandon completely the construct of a Catholic state and the common good and all that. Because their view was, hey, <laughs> we've, been, we've been losing for two centuries. If you keep doing the same thing over and over and over again, and you expect a different result, what do we call that? Now, mind you, I don't agree with them, but that's not the point. It doesn't matter whether I agree with them. But don't you think Vatican II is also affected by a, a, an illusion of victory in, in a sense that the very fact that your, your great um, uh, uh, <laughs> friend JFK was elected um, yes. just prior to the council made them think that, that we're kind of almost winning if only we weren't held back by this baggage of the social kingship of Christ, we could yes. you know, make the final dash to, to, the, to the capital. Absolutely. Absolutely. If you want to know why uh, John Courtney Murray, SJ, was so influential at Vatican II, look no further than the election of JFK that occurred on my birthday, just so you'll know, and be be uh, du- duly either sympathetic or respectful, whichever you prefer. But no, it's, it's quite true. Uh, look, look at these, how these several things come together. Centuries of loss, of defeat, over trying to maintain a, a quote-unquote Catholic state in America. And here, another quote from Benedict XVI is, is really useful. He had the saying, a confessionally neutral state nevertheless illumined by gospel values. Now, that is certainly what my country looked like at the time of the council. I don't say it was. I say it's what it looked like. And also bear in mind that the council fathers, especially the European ones, were really damaged goods. 
they've been through World War II and the older ones through World War One, And it, I, I have no doubt, deeply affected their judgment as living through a world historical event will do. You know, Father Pedro Arupe, who uh, more than anybody else is responsible for the Jesuits being what they are now. Did you know he was an eyewitness of the atom bomb in Japan? Yes. That, that does funny things to a man. I hope he was wearing sunglasses, but no, seriously. Uh, it, I mean, how do I say this? As an historian, you know, you do try to figure out what was going on in people's minds other than I want to be evil, <laughs> which you also have to accept a few people really do, but not many. So when you look at these things, you try to understand why the major actors thought the way they did. Um, with Vatican II, it was, I think, two things, the trauma of Europe and the seeming triumph of the American church. And this was an old story. In 1928, Cardinal Mundelein, a single archbishop, single archdiocese, bailed out the, Arch the uh, Holy See, which was about to go bankrupt. Now, that had an effect. In Europe, where you had all of these wonderful regimes, you had all these Catholic ideas and Catholic parties, none of them were in the position that the United States were in the year of our Lord, 1963. You come across this interesting paradoxical, uh, well, um, de Tocqueville once in, there's the comment, the famous comment in Democracy in America, where he says that, uh, that the political and social structure in the United States tends towards people becoming either atheists or Catholics. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with that passage, but in there's, there's a, there's a letter somewhere where he says that, um, that, uh, key to the success of Catholicism in the United States is the disapproval of the Catholics in the United States of the non-confessional character of the United States, that the, the non-confessional character provides the space for the success of the Catholics within the United States. But on there, on the end of the Catholics, key to their success within that context is their disapproval of the context. So it's this kind of amazing irony. Of, and so, so, so that... Um, I mean, I don't know if he's right, but it's tempting to think that he is right. And, and what you're suggesting is, is that the very success of that formula led to uh, people discarding half of it and thereby destroying uh, the, the engine of, of Catholic success in the United States. Absolutely. And of, of course, too, it's, uh, it is interesting that as in England, uh, the growth, the, the major um, political and intellectual growth of the Church of the United States was primarily pushed by converts and foreigners. And that, that too says something. Uh, the, the, one of the, I'm working on a, on a book right now um, on the Archduke Otto's writings about the United States. It's interesting that between 1830 or so and 1826, or sorry, 1914, Austria-Hungary, through the Leopoldine uh, Society, dumped millions of dollars into the church in America. 
And when you hear of our great missionaries like uh, Father Desmet and St. John uh, Neumann, uh, Bishop Baraga, these men were all paid primarily through foreign sources. And that was the case at least until 1908. Uh, we, uh, we have reaped what we did not sow. <laughs> I, I think we had an advantage in England, uh, which again, I think, I mean, I suppose this is like a biased lay perspective because every explanation for these historical trends I'm coming up with uh, ends up with the laity doing the right thing and then being betrayed by naughty clerics. But but um, but the um, but uh, we have an advantage in that we have the Church of England there. So we can just say they have what belongs to us. Yeah. What we want is to get rid of these frauds and replace them with the real church, if you say I mean. So the temptation to uh, to think that what we want is a kind of that we desire a kind of neutral neutral arrangement for its own sake uh, is less strong in the context of English Catholicism because English yeah. Catholicism is, much, is numerically much weaker than, than American Catholicism because, uh, you know, centuries of persecution and all that sort of thing, whereas the US is like a sort of cross-section of the human race and consequently uh, has a larger proportion of Catholics. Similar to London now in Britain, Catholicism in London is much stronger than it is elsewhere in the country because more than half the population of London are either foreigners or the children of foreigners. So, that's very true. You, you've not lived until you've uh, been to a Chinese Catholic parish, I assure you. <laughs> uh, but at any rate, I, uh, we should probably go back to 1914. Well, I'm, I'm very glad uh, that you mentioned the situation in France in this period of La Belle Epoque, the eldest daughter of the church and, and clearly a protagonist in in this drama and just before you join you join charles i was mentioning the writing of a polish thinker called jan potoka who was talking about the situation in the kaiserreich in germany before the first world war and he says that this this era the edwardian era the uh, fin de siècle uh, was was this growth of this technological civilization this triumph over of machine over man where humans were being stripped of all mystery. And this is a feature of modernity's organizational logic. And he asserted that this organizational logic had its model in the burgeoning German empire. And he said here that the, the last vestiges, obviously, of the Holy Roman Empire were formally dissolved in, in the 19th century. And then a managerial mode of work and thought took hold at a breakneck speed. And he said that if France was the revolutionary European nation par excellence of the late 18th and early 19th century, Germany was the revolutionary European nation par excellence of the late 19th and early 20th centuries. He writes, long before the First World War, Germany had already transformed Europe into an energetic complex, which is to say into a technological complex with an energetic propensity to war the revolution taking place in pre-war Germany had its deep driving force in the conspicuous scientification, a scientification which understood science as technology and was thus a positivism, which for the most part managed to neutralize the Germany of the fading old empire with its traditions of history, theology, and philosophy. In turn, he holds it a paradox, but an organizational fact that conservative Prussia and its military caste 
with its ossified bureaucracy, its incredibly narrow-minded Lutheran orthodoxy, was the bearer and agent of world revolution in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. So that, that might be a little bit harsh on Germany there, but it's something that's perhaps echoed by Modris Eckstein's in his books, Rites of Spring, where he, he very much asserts that Germany was the, the vanguard of these uh, noxious trends of modernity. And I wonder if, if you have any thoughts on that. Alan? Um, I mean, it seems to me the idea of, of Prussia as this essentially conservative force is, is a bit odd. I mean, it seems to me that the Hohenstaufen are, um, are a sort of sinister force in European history from at least the 16th century onwards. I mean, they're the first Protestant state. Um, they destroy the Teutonic Knights. Uh, I mean, the Teutonic Knights are, are sort of slightly shady organization even before then for various reasons um uh then then you know frederick ii in the 18th century is in some ways the first out and proud machiavellian statesman i mean in the sense that, that he, he, there's no he he's he's quite obviously not even pretending to have any moral justification for his key decisions that that that, that changed the course of european history and bring Prussia into the sun, to uh, use a, a phrase a little bit before its time, um, as, as a great European power. Um, and so, I mean, on the one hand, you could say if only, you know, Bismarck had lived for a hundred extra years and had, had not built a massive navy and tried to get a colonial empire and annoyed Britain and, 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 and continued to uh, behave as a satiated power, um, then World War I need never have happened. And if, if only Wilhelm II hadn't been injured in childbirth and been crazy, then perhaps uh, the whole thing wouldn't have, wouldn't have had to happen. But, but on the other hand, Wilhelm II seems like a, he seems like the product of his age. I mean, he seems like an expression of everything that the, that the Hohenstaufen dynasty was tending towards. And, 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 and his, his, his desire for a place in the sun uh, seems to fit with the uh, nationalist Darwinism of the age. So, so I'm, I'm not sure that we should be so nice about Prussia or try and exculpate it for the, uh, for the catastrophe or suggest that it was paradoxical that it should have ended up being the bearer of this sort of technological apocalypse. Well, it's, I, I should say it's Hohenzollern, not Hohenstaufen. They were long Did gone. I say Hohenstaufen? Sorry, sorry, Freudian slip. I just, yeah. <laughs> it's all right. It's all right. I wasn't paying attention. Or, uh, 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 never mind. Forget it. No, it's it's hard solid though. Believe me. Yes, From, no, I believe. All of, all of our Prussian fans sitting at home biting their really nails. Stauffen, I'm very sorry. Yeah, you did say Hohenstaufen. Apologies, apologies to Barbarossa. Don't worry, uh, about, don't worry about it. I uh, no, I. Well, see that there are several things going on at once here. One is that uh, to really, I think, to really understand both Germany and Italy in the mid-19th century, into World War I. Uh, one has to, I think, look back to Napoleon Bonaparte. Because the truth, although in 1815, the Allied powers thought they'd put the, the genie of Bonapartism back in the bottle. Uh, the truth is that 19th century liberalism owed him a lot. 
And I think that both uh, Cavour and Bismarck were as much as successes as Napoleon III. Um, the, two, the nationalism, uh, but nationalism employed in a particular way. Uh, to establish, in the case of Italy, a centralized state. In Germany, it was as centralized as he could make it. The problem was, well, he was a realist. You couldn't get rid of Bavaria and Baden and all that. So that's one thing. Uh, 19th century liberalism, because Bismarck was a liberal, that's another thing that has to be pointed out. He was not a Prussian conservative. He was a liberal. Just about my only really favorite among the, the, the Hohenzollerns, not the Hohenstaufens, that's all in the story, the Hohenzollerns, uh, was Frederick William IV, who had no use for Bismarck, the romantic upon the throne, and who knew that he had a traditional second place in Germany to Austria. That was why he wouldn't take up the imperial crown in 1848. He hemmed and hawed, but in the end, he wouldn't take it. Now... Um, Austria made a terrible mistake, which I think played out ultimately in World War I. As you may recall, in 1848, the uh, Hungarians rebelled, at least the Republican Hungarians did, and the Habsburgs were unable to put them down, despite having the assistance of the minorities in Hungary and a chunk of the Magyars themselves. So the Russians intervened. So far, so good. 1848 is over. But then comes 1853, when the three liberal powers, France, Britain, and Sardinia, yes, indeed, Sardinia, Cavour had reasons of his own getting in on the deal, went to war with Russia over Turkey, the Crimean War. Now, by getting in on the war, Cavour bound Britain and France to his side, which would have its effect a little later on. But Russia appealed to Austria. Now, to be honest with you, there wasn't much the British and the French could have done to Austria. Field Marshal Rudetsky, who had been the great master of the 1848 uh, fighting, told Emperor Franz Joseph, send me with a squadron of hussars. It's <laughs> all you need to do. But we've got to appear to back them up. But Franz Joseph made, I think, a big mistake. He stayed neutral. The result was that when Austria needed allies against Prussia and Sardinia, she didn't have them. And what, the end, what, I'm sorry? what would Austrian non-neutrality have looked like, an attempted invasion of the Ottoman Empire through the Balkans? Oh, who knows? Uh, probably they would have crossed the... Uh, remember, Serbia was semi-independent then. So they might have crossed into Serbia, they might have crossed into, uh, into uh, Wallachia, uh, rallied the locals, then tried to push into Bulgaria. But it wouldn't, uh, it really wouldn't have mattered. What was important was the, uh, the show of gratitude for what had been done. And because, I mean, there was only a limited amount the Austrians could have done for Russia anyway, but that wasn't really the point. Just as there was only a limited amount that the British and the French could have done to Austria. It's, it's not, not really important. Had Russia, had Austria rather, had Russia behind them in 1859 and 1867, 66 rather, um, in dealing with Sardinia and with Prussia, 
Europe would have been a very different place. Um, but he didn't. And so Bismarck and Cavour were able to accomplish their goals. And the result was the Bismarck Settlement, uh, which lasted until 1914, more or less. Wilhelm, I mean, the thing that's important to remember is that you had the same division in Prussia that you did in Britain. You had conservatives and traditionalists in Britain, as we know, and you had radicals and scientificists and industrialists and the Manchester School. They coexisted within the same Protestant nation. What was true for England was true for Prussia and vice versa. Uh, but you also had a Catholic movement in both countries. So, I mean, these things are they're very, very, very complex. I hate um, painting with a very broad brush, as it were. Wilhelm II, um, sad character. In a lot of ways, like Napoleon III or like uh, Umberto I of Italy, uh, the inheritor of a liberal throne who wanted to be a legitimate monarch. I wouldn't wish that on anybody. Not something I'd want for myself, I can tell you. But um, it's interesting to see how quickly power passed out of his hands in 1914. Well, I mean, he has the German constitution prior to World War One gave him complete executive power, did it not? He simply was limited by an elected legislature with for taxation and legislation. All true. But again, taxation and legislation are a big chunk of what modern governance does, number one. And number two, once the war broke out, the army took over. Neither he nor his chancellor were really, really in charge after about 1915. And that, incidentally, was one of the big problems for uh, both, for, to a degree, for Franz Josef, but particularly for Kaiser Karl in Austria, because during his celebrated peace plans, he had the support of the Kaiser, but it didn't matter because the Kaiser wasn't running Germany. So Wilhelm II supported Blessed Karl's peace plans? To the degree that he was informed of them, yep. But again, it didn't matter because he wasn't running Germany at that time. It's, I don't know if you've heard of this. There's, there's a, a biographer of Wilhelm II, um, John Rule. Um, who I think is at the University of London, one of the colleges at the University of London. But he, uh, I haven't heard this said by him, but, um, but it, I, heard, I read a review of his biography of, of Wilhelm II, uh, in which by another historian who alleged that this was the private, his private opinion, so I don't know what status he gives that, um, that, um, well, because we have evidence that um, uh, the German government uh, had had as were scheduled a general European war for late summer 1914, on the grounds that they couldn't win it later than that because of the Russian railway program uh, would have brought too many troops to the front line too fast for them to deliver the Schlieffen plan. Um, uh, but the, this, so this, I've forgotten the name of the historian who's reviewing Rule's book, but he he says that Rule's private opinion is that. While Gavrello Princip thought he was working for the Serbian Secret Service, he was in fact working for the German Secret Service, um, who wanted to trigger a, uh, a general European war and thought it was essential to trigger a general European war in late 1914. Have you ever come across that speculation? 
I, uh, I have not, actually. But it's certainly true that Franz Ferdinand was the leader of the Austrian Peace Party. Mm -hmm. And it's also interesting that the Serbians themselves executed Apis, who was uh, Gavrilo Princip's boss, mm -hmm. three years later. Yeah. You well, know, if, can you imagine if they just turned him over in 1914, what trouble we'd have, we'd have all, <laughs> we've got the man, here he is, have a nice day. And what's your assessment of the motivation of Franz Josef in, because I mean, it, it does seem in retrospect, and, and one would have thought it would have seemed at the time, suicidal for Austria of all countries to, to trigger a nationalist inspired general European war. Well, it's not exactly as though that's what they thought they were doing. That's the first yeah. thing you've got to bear in mind. Um, I think very, very few people who go to war have any idea where it's really going to end up, uh, number one. Number two, uh, it's important to remember, well, I'll give you an example of what I'm trying to get across. You may recall that in 1902, Wilhelm II and Nicholas II went for a cruise to the Baltic. And they had such a good time because they were cousins and they were friends. They signed a treaty of alliance between their two nations, which both governments immediately disavowed when they got back. <laughs> now, that tells you really where these so-called absolute monarchs were at the time. Uh, they, had, they certainly had a lot more push, shall we say, at that time. But they weren't absolute by any stretch. With Franz Josef, he was very old. He was very tired. Um, he had been struggling for quite a while with his nephew, Franz Ferdinand, who, number one, wanted to federalize the empire. And Franz Josef, having shed blood to get the Ausgleich hungry, was not keen to play with the Constitution anymore. And secondly... He wanted to, to revolutionize Austria-Hungary's system of alliances, uh, seeing an alliance with Russia and Britain as being more to, their, uh, more to their advantage than Germany. Although he was on personally good terms with the Kaiser, I think he was as, as aware of anyone as anyone that the Kaiser was not really in complete control. Now, interestingly, in 1913, he went to a hunting party in Buckinghamshire, Franz Ferdinand, I mean, and who should be there but all the leaders of the then out-of-power Tory party? And I really have no doubt that had he become emperor, when next the Tories were, uh, were uh, in office, there would have been a great change in the relationship between Britain and Austria-Hungary. I have no doubt at all. But uh, I mean, one thing I've, I've come to realize is that the death of Franz Ferdinand was not simply a great loss because it caused the first war. He was a great loss in and of himself. Anyhow, so uh, Franz Josef is presented with the situation as it is. He tells his ministers, no one can love war who's experienced it as I have. And this isn't going to end well. <laughs> well, they weren't interested and they pushed him and they pushed him and they got him to go along. And Franz Ferdinand wasn't there to... Um, try to influence him the other way. And Carl was certainly not in a position to. So they put pressure on Serbia. And you know, the requirements they gave Serbia were so reasonable that Berthold, the foreign minister, was afraid they'd accept them. 
<laughs> he was very fearful they'd accept them because his way of dealing with Austria's internal issues was to move down into the Balkans as though absorbing even more difficult people would help. <laughs> but anyhow, um, in the, in the, for its own part, to be honest, the Serbian government, although, as I say, they were quite aware. I, I, they did not. I mean, to my opinion, obviously, I don't know. But in my personal opinion, the Serbian government did not order Franz Ferdinand's execution. But their chief of the secret police did, Apis. Mm -hmm. And when it happened, they knew it. Um, why was but, Apis executed? What was the base? Why? What was he accused of having done? Treason, espionage, and and Franz and Franz Ferdinand's death. Right. Yes. <laughs> Who was he supposed to be acting on behalf of? Um, his own treasonous uh, self. You've got to remember that he had overthrown, uh, he led the coup that overthrew the prior king of Serbia in 1903 and brought back the Karadjordjeviches. So they felt somewhat beholden to him. But he had become more and more and more a problem. And in the end, he uh, resulted in the complete destruction of the country. There's another thing that if I think it's, I think I remember right, royal claims is that some, um, um is i think this is based on <laughs> it's based on uh reports from if you'll forgive me prostitutes who were working for um the austrian secret service and were frequented by wilhelm ii um uh, that he uh that he boasted that uh eventually he would reduce the habsburgs to being kings of hungary and uh and unite remaining German-speaking lands to the Prussian Reich. Um, and uh, and this, this is, this is an, again, an alleged motive behind the outbreak of World War I that, that um, and the blank check that Wilhelm II anticipated, uh, or the, Prussian, the German government anticipated that Austria-Hungary would break under the strain and this would give uh, this would give Germany the opportunity to absorb its southern provinces in inverted commas um, and uh, relegate the Habsburgs to uh, kings of Hungary. Well, I can assure you that was a fear on the Habsburg side. Yeah. Uh, Karl told his wife uh, when war was imminent in 1914 that an alliance between Germany and Austria was like an alliance with a, a, a pot, a clay pot, and an iron pot. You know, if you keep draw, you keep going along, and the, uh, the clay pot will shatter. Uh, he didn't trust the Germans either, but he inherited a war that he uh, didn't want and hadn't started. Uh, but of course, by the time he became emperor, but all these countries were so much into the war, and and don't forget too. That in uh, 19, was it 16, I guess, all of the leaders who had led their countries into the war, and I'm thinking now of uh, Batman Holweg, I'm thinking of Asquith, people like that, they all began to have second thoughts. And they were all quickly replaced with uh, more bellicose politicians. And this was because by that time, a lot of people had lost a lot of blood on both sides. And they were keen on seeing the thing through to the end. When uh, Carl began to 
do his various peace moves. The problem we faced was that although Kaiser Wilhelm was uh, sympathetic, he wasn't the man in charge. And the truth is that when the Germans were losing, they were in favor of talking peace. When the Allies were losing, they were in favor of talking peace. When either side was doing well, they were against the idea because both sides obviously wanted the Ultimately, the only effective leader that really wanted out was Karl. Um, the others wanted complete victory or nothing. Do you, uh, two questions, do you think, what do you think is the motivation of the German and Austrian bureaucratic machine in, uh, in, in turning against the idea of, a, of an alliance between uh, um, Germany and Russia? at the beginning of the century. And do you think that Franz Josef was right to think um, Franz Ferdinand's federalist plans were utopian and uh, liable to ultimately be counterproductive? Well, I'll answer the second one first. Uh, no, I don't think it was right. Um, I don't think so simply because the status quo wasn't going, couldn't continue the way it was. Not in Austria, because the Austrian ethnic uh, policy was very, uh, shall we say, enlightened. But the problem in the Kingdom of Hungary, I can spell in two words, liberals, Tisa. Uh, the Liberal Party, which garbed itself in the mantle of Kossuth, Republican Calvinist. Uh, well, let's put it this way. In 1848, again, they had had their revolution. The Slovaks, Romanians in Transylvania, the Serbs, the Croats, all revolted against the Hungarian Republic in the name of the Habsburgs, uh, as did, as I say, some of the Magyars. Now, when the Ausgleich came along and the Hungarians became, as they say, masters in their own house, the problem was that the non-Magyar majority was subjected to Magyarization by the liberal nationalist government. It would have been a very different thing if the Catholic Party had been in, uh, in power. And the writings of Madhya politicians like uh, Stefan Sechenyi, who uh, Kosovo himself called the greatest of the Madhyas, uh, were much more enlightened as far as dealing with their, uh, with their minorities. But the Catholic Party didn't win. Time after time, the liberals did. And the problem got bigger and bigger and bigger. Uh, it would eventually, possibly, likely have blown at some point. Um, Franz Ferdinand's idea was to let all that pressure out. And, you know, it's an interesting thing. There's a great myth amongst Hungarians that Franz Ferdinand hated the Magyars. Not true. Not only did he, was he very close to people like the Zichis and the, and the Sechins as leaders of the Catholic Party, but the, the priest who baptized his children was the same man who taught him Madhyar when he was stationed in, in Western Hungary. Anyway, a lot, of, a lot of trivia. But the point I'm making is that uh, I don't think that Franz Ferdinand was at all a utopian. Um, and oddly enough, had Karl succeeded in Hungary in 1921, 
in all likelihood, there would have been a pretty rapid series of restorations, especially with uh, French aid, because they were looking to reconstruct a uh, Central European bloc that would be a counter both to Germany and Italy. And that would have looked like nothing so much as Franz Ferdinand's plans, mm -hmm. which Karl shared, by the way. Um, so anyhow, the second question, it's a good one because the Dreikaiserbund on the face of it was a good idea. Uh, the only thing I can suppose is that the whole notion of pan-Germanism and of uh, pan-Germanic superiority uh, got in the way of, uh, of uh, the German government's vision. Certainly, certainly one of the reasons why you had all these non- and anti-nationalist movements come out of World War I is because it was perceived as the great horror brought about by nationalism. Pan-Slavism versus pan-Germanism versus pan-this and pan-that. Um, I, I know that, uh, again, Franz Ferdinand uh, was friendly to Russia and vice versa. It's claimed that the Russian Secret Service notified him that the Serbs are out to get him. I don't know if that's true, but it's claimed. Um, let's say, great loss. Interesting, you brought up Apis and Dragutin Dmitrievich, and there's it's all very murky, uh, <laughs> his background, and there's very little reliable evidence. But the German intelligence service during the war did allege that he was a member of, of a Masonic organization. They tried to prove that affiliation as part of their activities. Now, there is something of a whiff of Freemasonry around the Black Hand and those sort of secret societies. Jamie Bogle has written that there was a, the hidden secret forces at work which were determined at any cost to ferment a war and to destroy the Christian monarchies. And, and this kind of perhaps accounts for why Pope St. Pius X and then Benedict XV, Kaiser Franz Josef, Tsar Nicholas, King George V, they, they all didn't want war, but were unable to stop it. And we've got, you know, several villainous ministers in some of the governments who, who would really were trying to harness this nationalist fervor to press for war, and particularly of the sort of progressive persuasion. They were the ones pressing the monarchies to keep this, this steamroller going. So I wonder if you, if you have any thoughts on that, on the July days and the precipitation of this war that it seems that um, very few major actors actually wanted, but couldn't control when it looked like it was gathering steam. Well, I'll, I'll uh, ask Alan to go and take the first, first blow at that because he's going to be leaving us. Uh, well, I think um, it, um, you know, it's always uh, conspiracy. Th I mean, I'm not being rude, but I mean, conspiracy theories are by definition, you know, conspiracies happen. Uh, but but the, you know if, if they're any good, uh, theories about them will be unfalsifiable. Um, <laughs> so so that that you know, just like I mean nobody in their right mind thinks that um, Lee Harvey Oswald was a lone actor. But on the other hand, nobody has any clue really what was actually going on. Um, uh, and, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean it's um, 
it's very i mean it, i don't think it requires a conspiracy to start a general european war in order to destroy the crowned heads of europe um in 1914 in the sense that the drift of civilization uh was so much uh, inimical to those regimes they'd all had to make one compromise or another in order to survive, that, uh, that, that, that shaking up the chessboard was almost certainly going to lead to there being many fewer monarchs on it by the time you finished. Um, uh, so, I mean, I, I uh, um, yeah, I, I think um, we, before you arrived, Charles, we were discussing whether or not uh, the Leonine project could have done with another 10 years of the Vienna settlement clinging on uh, in order to get to the point where it could succeed at the ballot box. I mean, in the, in the sense that, that, that whatever, whether it was inevitable or not, it's clear that after World War II, um, uh, Catholic political forces were capable of getting into power in European countries at the ballot box. Um, uh, whether or not that led them to uh, ideological compromises which ultimately brought about their own destruction or not is, is a separate question. But, um, but they certainly weren't in that position in 1914. Um, uh, and uh, so, so in a way, uh, the shaking up of the chessboard in 1914 was premature from, from the... If, if one thinks that the Leonine project wasn't in, inherently misconceived, and that is my tendency to think that it wasn't inherently misconceived, um, uh, then I, th I think it, it, it needed more time to to its goals, um, and so so, but I mean that's that's such a grand strategic calculation that I can't see that it could be the basis of any sort of uh, anti-clerical conspiracy to start a general European war. All right. Um, well, other, let me just say that I can tell you the whole thing on the Kennedy assassination. Okay. Yes, you heard it here first. It was a, C a CIA plot to get John Connolly that went horribly awry. <laughs> you heard it here first, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> no, seriously. Seriously, though, um, you know, it's, it's very difficult to, to gauge these things because... Um, the very German Secret Service that was uh, reporting this, I mean, the Prussian establishment was heavily Masonic. Uh, certainly as is the American. By the way, today, July uh, 30th, is the anniversary of the foundation of the first lodge in Boston, Massachusetts, in the colonies, 1733. It happened today. And they're still going. So <laughs> there. But... At any rate, the uh, and see, there's an interesting thing right there. General Gage, the commander of the British troops in Boston in 1775, was a member of the Lodge, as was Dr. Warren. Now, you could read a lot of stuff into that between they were in it together to possibly secrets were passed to who knows what. The problem, as you, I think, rightly mentioned, the problem with the secret society is that if you're not in it, you don't really know what's happening. So, uh, but certainly the, in, in general, Freemasonry uh, in Catholic countries has embraced republicanism. In Protestant countries, it's generally part of the establishment, and so it doesn't. Not in Britain, not in Scandinavia. Of course, to be fair, 
in Sweden, King Gustavus III took control of the Masonic lodges. <laughs> and so the Swedish rights very different from everybody else. But at any rate, I digress. Um, the thing is, though, that certainly Freemasonry and Republicanism in Catholic countries have generally been tied very closely together, except, of course, in Italy, where it was uh, after 1831, it was tied to the uh, monarchy in Sardinia. Um, when the younger branch of the House of Savoy inherited um, as to whether or not, uh, as to whether or not there was a grand design behind it all, who's to say? I mean, as I've said before, people rarely know when they're starting a war where it's going to end. Um, the Serbs that they had accepted Austria's demands which they didn't, by the way, because the government was facing an election in November and didn't feel it could appear weak in front of the electorate. So you might call the war another triumph of democracy, if you wish. <laughs> but uh, if Germany, if Russia hadn't backed Serbia, if Germany hadn't backed Austria against Russia, if, 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 if. There's nothing more fun in history and nothing more useless. Um, doesn't keep us from engaging in it, of course. We, we all love it. Um, what is certain is that if the position of the church politically in 1945 was much better than it was in 1914, which I think is debatable, unless, of course, you want to throw in Spain and Portugal and Italy, uh, sorry, uh, Ireland, De Valera, in which case might be a little different. But that takes us back to the fact that that advantage was given away one way or another, somehow or other. Um, and I can't help but feel that that failure in the face of apparent triumph was connected to the first defeat. Or to put this another way, I don't think World War I would have worked the way it did or would have had the same effect if Catholics had been what they should have been in 1914. What should they have been? Zealous. Not, you asked about pillarization. Well, I don't think it had to happen that way inevitably. But I think they accepted the status quo in most places. And we're ha quite happy to go along to get along. But the problem for the Catholic faith is that we're never given that option. We can expand, or we can contract. What we don't get is the chance to sit comfortable and respected and accepted. We can win or we can lose. We can have the Edict of Thessalonica or we can have Nero's decree. But we can't, for long, we can't be in between. And that's, that's not, my, uh, not my thought, really. It's just the, an observation uh, from history. To answer your question, if Francis Catholics had been more zealous for the conversion of their non-Catholic non neighbors, and the same in Germany, and the same in Austria, et cetera, et cetera, things would have been different, I think. Although I have to say this much, two days ago I was in Sacré-Cœur in uh, Paris, 
And you get a feeling in that place of such a strong and assertive Catholicism, such a, uh, a wonderful feeling of a people who had been through such terror and horror and deserved it and were building this place in compensation and reparation. A very different Catholicism from what we have now. That's neither oh. confident nor penitential. On which cheerful note, I will unfortunately have to go. So. Well, it all right, fine. We're not going to end that way. It doesn't have to stay that way. How's that? Amen. <laughs> oh, Amen. Oh, well, thank, thank you very much for your time, Dr. Femister, and your great insights. I'll, I'll send you the link uh, when it's uploaded. I look forward to speaking again soon. God bless. Bye-bye, folks. God bless. Take care. Good to meet you.